when most companies think about culture fit, and I've heard I've heard people say this sort of stuff, it's like, oh, they're a good culture fit if I can go out for a beer with them and have a good time. And I'm like, well, no, that's that's actually not culture fit. That's just how you make friends, and that's just people you like. And so that's this big, this is big like riff in what culture fit really actually is, where it's more looking at like values and um, you know, and and really the idea is like you might actually dislike somebody, but they could still be a good culture fit in your company. And whether or not you enjoy a beer with them after work, or you even talk to them after work, that doesn't matter. It, it's more of a value. And like, what are your actual values? And do we share the same mission and values? Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple, humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Born and raised in the UK, our next guest is mixed race and didn't feel like he belonged. Leaving England to come to America, his accent followed, which also made him feel like he was yet again an outsider. A father of soon-to-be two kiddos, my next guest, Joel Lalji, has gained notoriety on social media helping recruiters leverage platforms like LinkedIn to create inbound opportunities. He's got a knack for telling it like it is and definitely worth a follow on social media if you're in the recruitment space. We had a chat a few months ago when this show was just an idea. So today I'm excited to have him here to share with you his truth. Joel, how's it going, my friend? Victor, doing well, man. Good to see you again, as always. And uh, thanks for having me on today. Absolutely, my man. So listen, let's dive right in. Growing up in the UK, I mean, I, I got your bio and it was like, as I'm reading through it, I'm looking at it, it says, Growing up in the UK, being brown, and then it says self-identified nationality or ethnicity, and you're like Caucasian. And I thought to myself, I'm confused, but I know your story. But share with us for our guest yeah, yeah. here today, what was that like growing up in the UK, being mixed race, that confusion, and, and how that made you feel in terms of belonging? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if we would actually break down, I guess my my right because they don't really do this that much in england either like in the uk the demographics are different so i always actually get confused when that question comes up uh but if you were to break things down my granddad he is from trinidad and tobago um and he was a mix of uh afro-caribbean and indian uh which is where my last name comes from so it's already confusing and then there's irish in there and then there's english so um you know, I, I think growing up in England, and I was in the north of England, so anyone that's familiar with England knows London. Um, London's obviously a major city, uh, pretty, uh, yeah, pretty diverse, a lot of, a lot of kind of the center of, of Europe in a lot of ways. Uh, but as you get further and further away from London, England becomes a lot more English. So I'm, I'm originally from like the north of England, uh, which is, historically just a very uh just a very white place i guess would be the best way way to put it um and so growing up in england a lot of people 
when they saw me, they automatically made the assumption that I was from Pakistan. Um, and there's a, a lot of Indians and Pakistanis that moved to England. Um, and so, so yeah, growing up, I mean, you know, that a lot of, I received a lot of insults and I guess anybody that's seen the European cup championships that was just, uh, televised, uh, you know, maybe in the last two or three weeks would have seen England crash out. Um, and then they would have seen the racial abuse online, uh, that the, uh, the guys who missed the shots to get them out received. And I think like in England, common things that would happen to me is just people yelling stuff. And then even as a kid, just getting like pushed around and I'm not talking about other kids. I'm talking about like grown, grown men, younger guys, you know, coming up to me, I get bullied on the way back home from school. Um, a lot. And so, so yeah, I think growing up in the UK in that type of environment, um, you know, it was tough, you know, and it was, it was, it was a challenge. Um, wow. So yeah. And you're saying grown men. So it wasn't even like, you know, schoolyard kind of, no. Hey, we're talking about grown men pushing you around, calling you names, right. Just sort of like tearing you down in terms of your self image as you're trying to form who you are. That's crazy. So what age did you leave the UK and come over to the US? Yes, I was I was 11. Uh, so yeah, I can. And again, that, I mean, even that within itself is a challenge because you're leaving one school system and you're going over to another school system. Um, and I think like obviously like the UK and America, they both speak English, uh, but culturally extremely different. I mean, it's just it's just they are two different worlds uh, within themselves. Um, but I had the choice of either going like basically going into fifth grade, which would have been elementary school or sixth grade, which is middle school or it was at that time, like that junior high. And because because like the school system in England's a little bit more advanced, I really couldn't go backwards in the fifth grade. So I had to go into sixth grade. So I was like, the youngest kid. And then I'm also from England. So again, like my accent was, it wasn't the Queen's English that I spoke. I'm from the North of England. So it was kind of more of a cross between like Irish and Scottish. And so, um, yeah, obviously I don't sound English now that changed within probably six months of moving here. So phrases, phrases like what's up, man. Hey, how's it going? Like, yo what's up like though i just would come home and start saying those types of things because i think when you're in sixth grade like you're trying to fit in and obviously now like if you're english and then you're an adult you know the english people that move over here they want to keep their accents because it's cool when you're in sixth grade you know when you're in that group it's like anything that makes you different is the worst thing that, that, that you can uh you can have so it's like yeah. So it was, that's why I think for me, it was a combination of just people asking the same questions over and over. Like, where are you from? I was like, I don't want to answer this for the rest of my life. And then just wanting to fit in. So it was really, really quickly. Hey, what's up? How's it going? And just trying to sound American. Whereas if you compare that to my parents who are already adults, they both have their English accents. Um, so, yeah. So they still have their English accents to this day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because and that's th- they didn't have that pressure, ahead. you know. Yeah, they. Didn't. Yeah, and I, you know, it's it's funny because I, that's why I kind of when you said six months, I couldn't believe it. 
I'm lean. I've never, and I've got family from England. I've got family from Trinidad and Guyana. And I was actually with one of my uncles who are, who's from Trinidad and he's going to be 60 and he's been in this country for 40 years plus, and he still has a Trinidadian accent. So losing it within six months, but was that to make sure that you fit in and you adopted? Was that why it was so important? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, again, like if you look at like a Northern English accent, it's kind of bordering on Scotland. So it's a lot more, you know, you'd say things, you'd use the word mate, for example, like everyone's their mate, like, you're right, mate, you're right, you know, that type of thing. And again, here, you know, when I moved here and I would be like, hey, mate, or I'd say stuff like that, people were just thinking like Animal Channel, you know, like, oh, this guy wants to mate me. So you got that. And then it's like, I'm really into soccer. And obviously, like, soccer is more popular over here now uh, in the US. But at that time, um, I was automatically a grass fairy and all this sort of stuff. And nobody wants to be a grass fairy when you're in sixth grade. Uh, you want to fit in as much as possible. So yeah, my sister's the same way. You know, she she would have been in fourth grade, but both of us really, really quickly just adapted the way that we communicated. And because we just wanted to, we wanted to fit in. And at that age, that's that's always the goal. That's, you know, I got a question for you because my first experience uh, back in sort of, could have been around grade five, grade six, where I first met the some English folks that were visiting a family member that lived on my street. What is the term that you use in the UK for for a cigarette? Yeah, fag. Right. And it was funny because the first time I heard that at that time, that was obviously a derogatory term. And when they said that, I was like, why are you asking me for that? Why would I have that for? And it was it was that they were looking for a cigarette. And it was just like you said, languages are similar. We both speak English, but there are very different connotations to some of the language that's used. So trying to utilize language that is more um, in line, I guess you could say, with what's happening over here. So, yeah. You're in the recruitment space. I mean, how long have you been doing that? So I've been in recruitment for the past seven years. Um, so I started in yeah, about 2015. Um, and then before that, I was in banking and I was you know, business banking. So I was writing loans for businesses. I was uh, doing mortgages and then running a bank, which anyone that knows me, it's like, no wonder that didn't last because I'm just like so against regulations. And it's part of the reason why like recruitment, at least agency recruitment, which is what I'm in, which is very like heavily focused on sales and consulting. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons I took to it so well, because, um, you know, a lot of times, especially especially in the sales portion of it or the recruitment portion, when you're trying to get a hold of people, um, I actually think that kind of bending the rules and like, you know, just doing things that are unexpected, it's a it's a super weapon, you know, because you're trying to get people's attention, you're trying to pat and interrupt their day to to get a conversation with them. Um, so going from a world that was really regulated to one which is like, you got to do what you got ever you got to do to get results, um, fitted me really well. And I think that's why I've stuck with recruitment and why I enjoy the industry so much. Very cool. And I mean, in those, I guess, seven years, I'm sure you've seen a lot that's changed and you've really sort of pioneered this utilizing of social media to create opportunities that are different than that outbound approach where you're constantly picking up the phone and calling people. Yeah. How has that worked for you? Yeah, I think, you know, historically within recruitment and sales, obviously, like historically it's 
cold calling and it's this idea of like hunting, you know, that's what, that's what they call it. And I think uh, for me, I've just seen these, uh, this idea of building community, building brand online. Um, it's something I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I think it's something which is still at the infancy stages, particularly within the recruitment industry, but we're seeing an understanding now that the way that people want to connect and the way that people want to be found it's just different. And I think, you know, as buyers in general, we're a lot more educated than we were five years ago, 10 years ago. Like, and like you go to buy a product, you're doing research, you're getting, you're doing reviews. And it's the same with people. You know, if, if you're thinking of a new product or a new service, if you're thinking of working with someone, you are going to find out, you know, who they are and what they're about. And you can just Google them. You can find out what their social media is about. And, and I think again, we're still in the infancy of that where I don't think it's like, I don't think a hundred percent of buyers are like that, but it's just growing and growing to where more and more buyers are like that. More and more candidates are like that. Um, and I think as, you know, as we shift into this kind of post COVID time where digital is again, exploded, I, I don't, I don't see people that don't have any, anything on social media or at least an understanding of how to connect with people digitally I, I I don't see you being able to survive no matter what business you are, whether you're in recruitment, whether you're selling a SaaS product, whether you're selling advertising, whatever it is. Um, you know, if you don't have an understanding of how to utilize social media and digital, I don't see businesses surviving over the next five to 10 years. Definitely. Digital transformation happens to be something that I myself am a big proponent of. I know that it's sort of the the COVID pandemic has sort of catapulted the necessity for some businesses to do that. And a lot of people were scrambling last year to kind of figure it out. And that was something that you had already pioneered for so many years. One of the, the shifts that's also happened recently um, is DEI in, in the recruitment space, right? There's a lot of conversations around Massive. diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, what's your take on that as you've been around the industry before that sort of been a hot topic and now that it has been a hot topic for the last little bit? Yeah, you know, and I'll I'll just go back to a quick story too, because I I don't think, I think sometimes it's helpful for people to know like what actually goes on. And, And I think sometimes we can have like really rosy lenses and sometimes like we can think, Okay, well now it's now companies seem to be more interested, so we're seeing good progress. But I, I want to just share a couple stories of things that I saw, which were absolutely shocking to me. Uh, but obviously, as an agency recruiter, I'm working with companies, so they're my clients. So when you have that type of relationship, like when they're paying you for something, what you know, the what you can say when they're a client, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like you, you kind of do whatever they want essentially. Um, so that's my role because people might hear this and go, well, why didn't you say something? Um, you know, I'm working for a company. These are my clients they are paying us. Uh, but the first example, uh, or I guess the first scenario that I'd run into a lot would be this, this, you know, obviously you have foreign workers, right? So people who are on visas and, you know, if someone's on an HB one visa, for example, and you take them on as an employee, you've got to pay sponsorship um, and companies don't typically want to pay that sponsorship, even though it's kind of a nominal fee. Um, and so I quickly would run into things like, well, 
you know, are you sure that, you know, you'd send them over a resume and be like, are you sure, you know, they're, they're, you sure they're not on a visa? And they'd base that just based on their name. So even if somebody was a citizen, if you have a name that's unusual uh, or what that person would perceive as unusual, um, and obviously, you know, my last name, my name, Joel Lougey, like, you know, I've got a weird name myself, but if it's a name that's not what they're used to, assumptions start to get made. So I, I started to run into like, you know, I'm submitting them candidates and I'm wanting to get a placement. And I just started to see that like, there's a lot of hiring managers out there that will make decisions, not on what your resume looks like, but literally what your name looks like. And you make, you know, you make uh, judgments, which is why when we talk about um, how we move forward, it's good to know that like, that's, you know, this was five years ago, so it's not that long ago. And that's how people, that's how some hiring managers view it. And then the next thing that, next thing that really opened my eyes was uh, a leader that I was working with. It was a VP at a company, a really well-known company. I submitted a candidate over to him and I thought she was great. We had a great conversation and his response to me uh, to, to tell me that he didn't want to hire this person was, a screenshot actually of a UCARE page uh, where she was raising money uh, for an illness that she had. And the way that this was communicated to me was a, a picture of her UCARE page. And then um, the life expectancy with somebody with that, with that disease. I got that message back. And at, at that point, I'm just like, it's pretty new in my recruiting career. And I was like, I don't want, I, t- I t- told my boss, I'm, like, I'm not going to work with this guy anymore because why would why would you send something like that like if you didn't want the candidate you could have just told me or just said hey but to see that so i think those two stories to me show like those types of people are decision makers at companies so before we even approach like how do we change got to understand like there's a lot of people who have just really messed up views who are in these positions I think as far as the advancement goes, I think right now there's a lot of companies that are just have a lot of pressure in terms of PR and media. So it's important to understand that it's very easy for companies to say, hey, we're going to do this. Or it's easy for companies to appoint a chief diversity officer or a chief DNI officer, whatever that is. It's easy to do stuff like that, to look a certain way. But I think to me, we're a long way from from these things because it's it's the people who are in those hiring manager roles. It's the people who are in the decision making roles. Um, the predo- predominantly was still looking at the same demographic, which is like white guys, you know, in their thirties, forties, and fifties. They're the majority of the decision makers. So um, I think it's good. I think I think the pressure that's out there is good, and I think companies are get, are getting there, but. Um, I've spoken to lots of people who are in these like diversity positions and it's all well and good. They get instated. They make some cool social media posts about it. And it's like, Hey, we're committed to this, but then the support they receive on the back end, uh, a lot of times is pretty poor. Uh, and it's usually not from the CEO. Like CEOs are great because CEOs aren't stupid and CEOs care about the company and they go, we understand why diversity is important. We want different thinking. We want, people who see things differently because that's going to add to our company. It's actually middle management that that's the worst with this stuff. And those are the people who are kind of hidden that you don't see that don't make the social media posts. Um, that's where the bottlenecking is. 
Um, and those are the people that I would deal with in, in recruitment. So again, I think that it's good that the pressure's there, but I think it's good to be realistic with like where we're actually at with these things. Now, again, with that being said, I think in 10 to 15 years, you know, which seems like that's a long time, right? But I think in that type of time period, that's when I think we'll start to really uh, see like big shifts. Because I think there's a lot of people that just need to retire and kind of move on, if that makes sense. 100%. You know, sort of the old guard, if you will, thinking, which is, uh, you know, and you, you brought up a really interesting point about you know, sort of perception versus reality, right? So what are we putting out into the world? How are we marketing the uh, the firm's reputation? And it's PR, it's your marketing departments, but what is the reality of the, the culture of that organization? What exactly. is the reality of the people in that organization? You know, um, Lalji, you know, that name, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, there's a brown guy. And then, you know, when we started talking, um, you know, I, I obviously asked you a little bit about your background, your ethnicity the very first time. But I had put out a post on on LinkedIn because my name is is Vishal, but I go by Victor um, for that very same reason. And it's it's crazy to me that that still happens today, but it's not surprising. You know, one of the things that you brought up is, is some of that inside scoop. Are there any sort of inside stories that you can think of maybe that you can share with the audience specifically around equity in the workplace? Because, you know, I have a daughter, I know you have a daughter, and that is one of the reasons I started Discourse was to create more equitable spaces for not just race, but also religion and um, gender and sexual preference and orientation. So tell me about any sort of experiences you've seen in the LGBTQ or in the um, in the uh, gender disparity, anything along those lines? You know, I I, I haven't run into. I, I can't even really think of too many stories with that because I think really when I look at like how even just from like a PR standpoint that a lot of these topics have be uh, become just more at the forefront. I really think, you know, because now I'm not, I'm actually in recruitment anymore. Now I'm helping recruitment companies with the, with their marketing. And so, and I would have made that change about a year and a half to two years ago, which is when I think a lot more of these conversations have become more relevant. And I, I even think with, um, you know, like LinkedIn, obviously, like you have the option now to have your pronouns displayed. And so I actually think that a lot of those types of conversations um, it seems like they popped up really within the last like year even. Um, but again, I, I, I think if I look at, if I look at the, com if I look at the conversations I had when I was in recruitment, you know, I think it always comes down to like, who is the type, who's the person you're dealing with. And I think a lot of people who are in hiring manager positions or in leadership roles, it's like they, a lot of people don't want to feel comfortable. So like the best way that I could think about it is people just want to avoid discomfort and things they don't understand. Uh, and I, and I think, yeah, there's been strides, but there's still just a large population of people who are just very, just, they're just uncomfortable. Um, and I think that's where we're at, where we're, where again, on social media and, and media channels, like things can seem really like loud 
Um, but when you actually get in the nitty gritty of like companies, um, that's where I start to question like, well, how much progress has there, there really been? Um, you know, so I could think of like one of the last companies I worked at, they were like, yeah, we're really big on, uh, you know, Dean and I, where we want to, we want to see these initiatives. And it's like, then you look at the leadership board and it's four white guys. So, you know, it's like, it's easy to say, uh, and easy to do. And I, but I do have, I think there's that hope for, you know, even, I think things can change quicker, you know, but I would say like, you know, I think it, I think when we have these conversations in five years, went a different place. And, and it seems like, it seems like there's, there's a lot of companies that are trying to make an effort. Um, but yeah, so sorry to disappoint on the, on that, on that no. setting, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> try to pull, try to pull some of the good stuff out because, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, as we've had guests on the show and especially in recruitment, there is a lot of things that happen because like you said, those clients are paying you. Um, and, and, you know, you've got NDAs and things are wrapped up and you just can't be speaking about that. And there's so many challenges that I know people deal with in the workplace and it's been uh, tough because for myself, I've done a lot of my work in, um, uh, Asia and, and places uh, here in North America. And I haven't had that experience myself personally, other than race related. But I know that when you're hearing other people's stories or placing candidates, you definitely sometimes hear that. And, and marketing is a completely different play. And those are the people who are sharing um, the message of those corporations, but whether that reality internally matches the message well, is sometimes and, a different story. And I think that's what you got to keep in mind is, Perception and reality are two just completely different things. And so if a marketing person who's probably spending a lot of time in social media is like, well, all these companies, you know, Nike's talking about this, Apple's talking about this, like we need to talk about it too. That's where like marketing will start to conjure up those things. Um, you know, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, right? Especially if you're looking, like I think of one thing I hear a lot about is like recruiters don't give good feedback. And it's all well and good for somebody on social media to say, employers you need to give good or recruiters you need to give good feedback but when you actually look at it like again you know like ageism right now is massive like i i, I would actually say the age i think i think more people are being discriminated on age now than maybe other things because when you think well, like one of the biggest conversations that we would have is you know, we want an up-and-comer people say stuff like that oh, i want an up-and-comer you know that means we don't want somebody old I would hear that more than anything else, like more than anything else, because the assumption is if someone's old, they're not going to be able to pick up on the new tech. And we just didn't, we just invested in our new CRM. We just invested in our new, you know, whatever that tech is, which everybody's trying to up their tech right now. And the idea is, Hey, if you're over 40, you're not going to be able to catch on quick enough. Um, so I think in the last two to three years, I actually think age and and being discriminated on age has actually been it's actually probably more of an issue than maybe some of the other things uh or some of the other areas right now um and you see it because if you know when the pandemic hit a lot of companies furloughed a lot of companies tightened up and so who goes well probably people who get paid a lot but the output isn't really that much that's a lot of older people you've been in your job for 10 years you got to a certain pay level, but you haven't, you're not really doing anything. You're like, when you break it down, you're not really adding anything to the business. You're, you're the first person to go. And so then you enter a job market and you're starting to compete against 
the millennials that 10 years ago you wouldn't even hire because they were just bums living in the basement. So now I think for people who are over 45, if you're over 45 and you just got laid off and you're in a job market, you have a tougher time of getting a job than I would argue than other areas of that of potential diversity, if that makes sense. Um, so it, does. it really does, you know, you know, now I think with that, I'm like, well, you kind of deserve it. Cause I remember when I was in college and I was trying to get a job or I, was, I graduated in 2005 or sorry, 2011, I graduated college right after, you know, right in it, kind of right at the end of the recession, but kind of moving into the recovery, but still that recession was in mind. I couldn't get a job and lots of people I graduated with, we couldn't break into the business world because we didn't have experience and people were saying stuff about millennials all the time. And now it's like millennials got into the workforce. Now they're decision makers. Now they're discriminating against older people. So it's uh, kind of don't feel too bad about that one. <laughs> but you know, you, you, you brought up a good point around ageism, right? Because that's also something that I don't, uh, maybe I, I'm not thinking a lot about top of mind wise because I'm not in the recruitment space, but in the diversity space, it's one of the things that um, does matter a lot. And my diversity hat always, because there's so many different areas of diversity and inclusion that it uh, it doesn't always venture there, but it's definitely one of the areas where I know from experience where, for example, companies will make decisions strictly on profitability and the bottom line. And that means that if I can get rid of someone who takes a salary of $250,000 a year and I go hire three up and comers, um, you know, I'm getting more bang for my buck. They'll be able to grab the tech a lot quicker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's really great, man. Thank you so much for that insight. You know, one of the things that uh, people are dealing with as well as they're out into the workaday world is that they are having a tough time feeling like they fit in. You know, there's there seems to be a culture problem with a lot of companies. And, um, you know, you talk about mental health. Uh, I've seen your stuff. You talk about not feeling like you belong and people not feeling like they belong. Do you want to maybe dig into your thoughts um, for our guests on mental health and belonging when it comes to the workplace? Yeah, I think... You know, we, when we throw around words like culture, you know, that was obviously, I, th I think that word has just become more prevalent over the last 10 years in recruitment. And it's particularly when I started in recruitment, it was like everybody was talking about culture and culture fit. Um, and then I think then you have, you know, things like inclusion and belonging, which almost kind of go against culture fit because people really haven't when most companies think about culture fit and I'd heard, I've heard people say this sort of stuff. It's like, Oh, they're a good culture fit. If I can go out for a beer with them and have a good time. And I'm like, well, no, that's, that's actually not culture fit. That's just how you make friends. And that's just people you like. And so that's this big, this is big, like riff in what culture fit really actually is, where it's more looking at like values and, um, you know, and, and really the idea is like, you might actually dislike somebody, but they could still be a good culture fit in your company. And whether or not you enjoy a beer with them after work or you even talk to them after work, that doesn't matter. It, it's more of a value. And like, what are your actual values? And do we share the same mission and values? And so I, I think when it comes to even belonging in the workplace, I mean, my first question would be like, 
why do we have to belong in the workplace in terms of like, oh, what does that even mean? You know, and I think what's happened is, is like culture has become, again, like based like more of like a friendship question and like, do I like this person? And I think businesses, they need to get out of that and they need to be training hiring managers on like, no, like whether or not you can have coffee with somebody and like have lunch with them. That actually isn't the defining factor in whether or not you guys are going to work well together. Um, you know, it, it's really more to do with, do we have the same mission and we, do we have the same values and can we respect each other? Because you should respect one another at work and we should be able to have respect for other people we work with and respect them as human beings. But that has nothing to do with whether we like them or, the, or whether we like the same football team or we like the same sports or we are into the same music or the same movies, whatever commonalities we, we think of. Um, so I, th- I think it's, I think first of all, it's companies need to reassess those types of things and hiring managers need to think about like what culture really is. And then I think as individuals, um, you know, I would just argue, like, I, I think, I think even like the amount that we work and what we see in work is changing. So I could see in the future, I don't think work's going to matter as much as part of our lives. Um, and so I would, I would just look at like, okay, as far as belonging goes, um, what communities even outside of work, am I, am I getting that sense of community or belonging in as, in as well? And start to ask like, do I actually need that at work in that same way? Um, so I think it's both both sides like redefining why that matters and like what these things actually are. Um, but you know, I mean, right now we're just in a unique time too because obviously a lot of workforces are remote, and so I think it's hard to belong in that environment anyway. Um, and that's why I'm a big proponent of like community, different communities, and finding different communities in different places. Uh, and so I have like my work community and I have my, you know, my LinkedIn creative community and I have my family community. I have my church community. I have a lot of different communities I'm involved in. And I think that's important, you know? And, and so I think if you're just trying to find your community and work, I challenge you on that and go, all right, is that really the best place that you should be finding community? Like there's other communities out there that I think you can, you can find as well. I love, dude, I absolutely love that because it's funny. I've been hearing a lot about sort of this from people in the recruitment space and um, talking about toxic work environments and cultures. And and do you think it could partly be that people are looking for something at work that they're not getting, but should be, or could be getting elsewhere as well? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think like, again, I think one of the shifts we're going to see and we're already seeing it, but we're going to see more and more is this idea of like, uh, of I don't want to work for one company. Instead, I want to trade my skills at multiple companies. And I think we're going to see a lot more people that do that. And that's come, that's like the, the freelance of the gig economy. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think it's going to be, you're going to be more and more able. And that comes down to companies thinking more lean and thinking more about how they build and scale. Because uh, I think scaling companies now looks a lot different than it did five years ago or ten years ago because of technology, um, and I, and I also think like you know as individuals, I think it's easier for us to work in that way, and I think there's a lot more people that want to work that way, um, and I think work as we know it, where you have that sixty to eighty hour mentality where you're working for one person, I think that's actually going to change to 
less work uh, and more of a trade of skills and results that you're able to like trade with companies. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I think, and I, and I think the, that idea for companies is going to change as well. Again, like companies, when you meet with hiring managers, like you, we, I used to hear it all the time, like, oh, I don't like that person because they're a job hopper. But we're looking for somebody that's going to work with us for 15 to 20 years. I, I don't, I, I think that mindset, if that mindset, if you're still thinking that people are going to work for you 15 to 20 years, I don't know what world you're living in. But I think that mindset adds to that as well. Uh, because then they're like, oh, well, this person isn't committed. And I think if that's the type of workforce you're in, or if that's what you're expecting, um, then, then yeah, you are, it's almost like you're looking for work to provide that where I think just in the future, I just don't think, I don't think work is going to matter as much. And, you know, unless you've got your own business, I guess, if, if that makes sense. So I kind of see it where like each person's going to kind of be their own business and then they're going to be just trading whatever their skill is. So if you're a software engineer, you might just come in for a company and work on like one project that they have and do that. Or if you're in marketing, you might just do a couple of marketing projects for a company and then move out and move on to something new. Uh, as opposed to this idea of like finding your identity and who you are and like your job title or who or for a company, if, if that makes sense. Um, and I really see that trend with like younger people. Like, I just think, I just think like I'm pretty immersed in like culture stuff when it comes to like TikTok and like consume a lot of that content. And I just see a lot more kids are like, they're not wanting, they don't, the idea of like working 40 hours a week for somebody for 10 years, like, isn't even a thought in their mind. They're like, why would you do that? Like, you don't need, you don't need to work like that. Um, so yeah, which is exciting. I, I mean, to me, that's exciting. A hundred percent. And you know, it's funny that you talk about that because like you said, you are a social media, uh, guru, so to speak, where you're really connected to a lot of these platforms and sort of that Gen Z um, crowd. And I'm, you know, hearing a lot of people saying, like, there's one girl that I know that uh, used to work uh, at a good corporate job here It was a government job. And she like, bought a van and she's doing YouTube and traveling and like, you know, they converted into a home and she's got like a uh, a t like a YouTube show and you know she's got all this money that she's coming in through advertising like there's so many different ways through technology to create income that people are looking at the prospects of 40 years uh, at a job doesn't make sense right you just sort of like I have these skills of utility how do I take it into the marketplace and get paid for them yeah I mean I, I just even think like when I started my own company uh, which I'm Technically, I still, I basically own my own company and I'm contracted with a, a company in the UK and we're working together. Uh, but when I did start the company, do I, I, you know, I was like amazed by how cheap stuff is. Like, you know, you could get a website for cheap, you know, and you could, there's just so many tools out there. Like Canva is $10 a month. And suddenly a guy with zero design background, I'm able to produce stuff that looks like what would have taken me you know, I would have had to have a degree 10 years ago to do, to do produce the stuff that I'm producing. But, you know, I think people overestimate the cost of like starting stuff. It's super cheap. Like you, you can start a lot of things really, really cheap nowadays. You can start, a, you can start a, a storefront on Amazon or Shopify, super cheap, you know, and then you got to source products. And 
I'm not saying these things are easy. They're not. Everything, anything in life that that is worth anything is going to be hard, you know. But it's like you have options now on like what type of hard you want to do. If you want to grind for tw- ten years and work your way up a company, great, do that. If you want to grind for ten years and build your own thing, you can do that. Uh, but I think like tools like social media, like you said, like YouTube, podcasts, social media, those things were not about around really that that long ago you know and and the emergence and people figuring out how to use them and and utilize things is amazing like i look at what i do on linkedin the amount of eyeballs that i get on my content from a business to business perspective i get i get the same views that would have cost a company you know maybe 30 to 50 grand a month to get if they were to do like radio or tv advertising I get it for free. All it requires is my time and just consistency. Um, so it's it's I'm not, I don't have to pay money for it. I have to work hard at it. Uh, but I look at things like that, and I look at like the stuff people don't take advantage of, like TikTok, for example. Like the organic reach on that platform is insane, and then YouTube Shorts right now, organic reach is insane. And you know, it's like you have kids that get, you know, some of my top videos on TikTok have million plus views. And it shows you how long people have watched it. And some of them, it's like 3,000 hours of watch time. And when you think about that, and you think about people like, you know, if 100 million followers who are getting that on a daily basis, like they would have, they, they're doing it, they're getting that for free. You know, like they, <laughs> wow. it's mind blowing. Imagine if you had got that much airtime on like TV, you'd, you'd be, you probably have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for that. And they're getting it free every single day. And, uh, but stuff like that, that wasn't around, you know? And like, for example, like there's songs that trend on TikTok that, you know, I know people who are in the music industry that, that spent years building up their, building up their, their audience. And I know people in the last two years that have just done videos on, on TikTok and their songs start to trend. And the next thing you know, they got record labels calling them and they're trending and they're getting millions of views on their, their, their songs. It's like that stuff wasn't really available a couple of years ago. And, uh, and that's exciting and that's accessible because that means that like you can compete against big brands. And, and I think, you know, like there, like for example, uh, you know, there's different brands on TikTok that maybe have half a million followers, and there's kids that have four million. So that means that on that platform, which is growing, there's kids that are like beating out big brands and celebrities. It's amazing, uh, and it's exciting, and it's and uh, I think if you take it seriously and you look into things, um, there's a lot that you can do at, at a micro level as well. Definitely. You know, I come from the old school yellow pages time frame and knocking on doors yeah. and picking up phones. And, you know, um, I'm just always constantly amazed at and I've, I've, I've owned different companies over the years, but how influencers are able to move traffic and buyers and uh, narratives at scale. Right even more so than some of these large brands with the big ad budgets because the attention is no longer on the television commercial. People aren't TiVoing their commercials. They're sitting on TikTok or Instagram or even for myself, like I've sort of 
not really a social media person, but I've gotten onto LinkedIn. I've enjoyed it. I feel like the platform has many people that are um, business oriented like myself. And I can connect with people who have great thoughts or ideas or sharing things that are important to me, right? It's finding where your audience is and sharing that message. As a marketer and someone who sort of like creates these opportunities for recruiters, what is something that you would tell them or share with them that they should be doing when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion on social media? Yeah, I think, I think we, we, we talked about, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think, I think there's a lot of like wishful ideas that, that, that people get hooked up into. So I think it's starting hard conversations, to be honest. Like, I think it's like not just looking at what's trending and then going, well, you know, Nike and Apple are talking about this and Netflix is doing this. So we'll just say we're doing this as well. But I think it's just starting more conversations around harder topics and being willing to be uncomfortable. And then I think off social media, when it comes to these individual conversations, I think it's just challenging clients. And, and, you know, like I said at the beginning, like those are my clients. So I didn't say anything. And I think looking back at it, I should have said something and been like, Hey, you know, like, so what the guy's got a name that you don't feel comfortable with, like stop making assumptions, you know, like, have the conversation. Uh, I think luckily right now it's the job market's really tight, meaning that a lot of people are looking for people. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. And uh, I was actually talking to one of my friends who's still in recruitment and he's just saying like, now's a time where, um, you know, recruiters, uh, you know, to be a good recruiter, you can't just submit like the perfect candidate. You have to give like companies options, like different types of options. And, I think diversity is included in that as well. And looking at people with different backgrounds and being willing to submit and like stand up for people as well. Because at the end of the day, companies coming to you because they need help finding someone. Uh, it's it's standing up and making the case and going, yeah, okay, they don't have the degree from like the school, which like you think is amazing. Uh, but here's the actual value that they can bring. And here are the intangibles, which, yeah, you don't see it on the resume. Um but here's here are the intangibles. So, but I think there's a lot of opportunity right now for that because, you know, it's a lot of these tech startups, a lot of uh, these companies that are emerging, you know, even out of the pandemic, they're finding it hard to find good people. So I think now is a great time to start to to diversify the the workforce. And then I think it's coaching your clients, you know, and and. On social media, if you don't have a presence, I mean, I think it's getting involved in conversations as well and it, getting your leadership involved in conversations and, and having them ask tough questions and not shying away from those things. I think the things to avoid are like, again, just following trends because like you think that like it's going to look good. That's dangerous. Like if all you're trying to do is just look good, but then your company isn't really doing anything, you're going to get found out and then you're going to look 10 times worse. Um and I think it's bringing in experts, you know, people who have degrees in in areas and and can speak and like thought leaders within within the space that know what they're talking about and have strategy and actionable strategy, uh, particularly when it comes to onboarding and like it's not just hiring people. Like hiring people is part of it, and like looking at different candidate groups and not just going to like LinkedIn maybe and maybe sourcing candidates from you know other 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 places that's part of it but then 
what then you hire you hire them like is your team really creating an environment that supports supports inclusion is is your team actually doing something so um again i think recruiting is half of it but then it's also like what about a year later or two years later what's your retention like and um how you really supporting people and so i think that's where it's like bringing in experts and and being humble enough to go yeah i don't know what i'm doing (laughs) i don't know how to have (laughs) these conversations you know Difficult conversations. I think, you know, that's really where things begin is is engaging in discourse with people and really understanding what the needs of the business are as well as the needs of the people. Because without people, you don't have a business. Without a business, you don't have people, right? And I think it's, it's understanding how to marry those two in a culture that makes sense for, like you mentioned earlier, values. Um, it, it, it obviously goes without saying respect for everyone yeah. and you know diversity of thought which i love and lived experience being weighted uh equally to degrees and and things of that nature because i'm one of those people without a degree right and uh if shame that... on you <laughs> <laughs> but you know if i were to be discounted just on that fact uh i i would think that people would be missing out on um some great people. And that actually happened to me one time at user universal music group. I was at their head office here in Canada. I was, um, going in for a meeting and the, uh, at the time the VP of legal, uh, meets you down cause everything has a little swipe pass thingy. And as he gets in the elevator, he goes, uh, and this was when I just first started my, my marketing company back in like 2007. And he says, um, two things. And he's wearing, he's suited and booted, eh? Like real shark lawyer guy. He goes, two things. First thing is, don't like that you don't have a degree. Second thing, I checked, your head office is out of your house. And that was it. And he left that, got into the boardroom. He sat me all the way on the other side. He was sitting on this side and I just, I felt small. But at the end of the meeting, I did what I did. I added the value that I came to add to the conversation. And he says, I want to apologize. There's nobody else better that we could have had at this meeting here today. Yeah, I love and, that. And it was just a testament to someone who was had a, an assumption or a bias. And at the end of it, based on the conversation, said, I no longer have that assumption or bias. I apologize. You were the right person. And we had multiple conversations afterwards on other things they were working on. And I thought to myself... You know, even though I don't feel valued or I feel like I belong, I was able to go in and do what I do. And I love that now those conversations are happening with corporations, with those middle managers to say, here's a candidate. They might not fit all of the requirements, but there's someone you should look at because of X, Y, and Z. And that's you folks championing those candidates to the companies that you're working with. Exactly. Last and final question. How do you, sir, think we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? I was going to say by respecting everybody, but that's in the question. So. <laughs> no, I look, I, I think it's like, again, you know, I think when you move countries or you move different places, you get a good feeling for like how easy it is to get caught up in your own bubble of like what you even think, like what you think the world is for example or like what you um you can just make assumptions like oh everybody is just the same as me so i think it's you know just at that foundational level just realizing like okay people 
everyone's going to think differently. Everybody's going to have different thoughts um, and understanding that in the conversations you're having. And then I think being open-minded about, about things in conversation is, is massive as well. And just not being quick to assume things and, you know, respect and caring for people and, um, and just understanding like the things that you think that just not, you know, 6 billion people on earth. So it's like, it's impossible for everybody to think the exact same way you do. But I think like as humans, that's just automatically how we are. So it's just confusing when somebody has like an idea that is contrary to, to, to what we think. Um, and I think like having, being open to being open to conversations, and I do think like there is a danger right now of losing like that conversational piece because like even even if you're it doesn't matter what's which side you're on but I, i've heard people say just like well there's just no more we can't have any more conversation i'm not even going to have that conversation with that person and and it's un, unfortunately right now that's kind of on on both sides and, and i think it's just understanding that you know, one of the biggest dangers on social media and, and what I think social media has done to our country and like world in general is it's really put us on like opposite sides of the fence because all we see is that opinion. We see that thought and we got to step, take a step back sometimes and just even with the people who are just completely opposite to us, it's realizing like if you're actually in a room with them one-on-one as humans, like typically like you don't, you're actually not that polarizing. You typically, you actually work together. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I just think it's like taking a step back and going, okay, Hey, we're both, both humans, we're both people. We both have similar goals. 99% of us have similar goals as just humans. Like we want the same things. Um, and being willing to have those conversations, uh, and then being, pa- I think patience is something we just are losing as well. Again, social media is a big thing that we're training kids to, like 15 second videos and social media has trained us to like just attention spans are lower. But I think with things like this, it's like patience and grace for other people and letting people make mistakes and like not just giving up and getting mad with them either, uh, which is tough. Uh, especially if you've, if you've been on the end of like terrible things, that's tough and that's a lot to ask, but I think you still got to have grace for people and patience as well. I think you just gave us some some tremendous life lessons, not just for diversity and inclusion, but also for life itself, because yeah. um, that was awesome, man. Really and truly. Lastly, where where can people find you? Just uh, do the Google search for Joel Lalji, because I'm actually the only Joel Lalji in the world, uh, which is crazy. Uh, but what? yeah, there's no one else with my name. Uh, but if you do that, you'll see like my LinkedIn will pop up. And I'm, I've done a lot of different podcasts as well. Um, I would say LinkedIn's the, the funnest way to connect with me because that's where I, I do it, spend a lot of my time. Uh, but if you want to, if you want to connect, you know, just give me a little message. Say heard you on the podcast, and I'm happy to connect. Uh, but definitely put a message in there. Otherwise, uh, just kind of get lost in a sea of, sea of requests there. So uh, you got a lot of people, my friend. You got a lot of people. Or well, Twitter. Okay. Twitter's Twitter's a good place too to find me. Twitter, like three hundred people on there. <laughs> There you go. See, you can you can actually get access to Joel if you hit him on Twitter. That's the way to do it. Well, thank you so much for sharing You know your wisdom, your experience, and your truth here today. So there you have it, folks. The truth according to Joel Lalji. Thank you, my friend.
great to be here man appreciate you absolutely appreciate you as well thank you so much for listening our show is sponsored by discourse we build belonging into the dna of dei you can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our youtube channel discourse agency make sure you hit that subscribe button leave a review drop a comment and most importantly share it with a fellow human thank you so much for your support and remember your truth is your experience bye for now